we have to recognize that there is value in sort of market-based alternatives uh, and, and that open monetary networks bring risks like anything, but also bring unimaginable opportunity for spreading democracy, for ensuring civil liberties and rights, uh, and for connecting more people to the global economy. Hello there. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for those people living in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. You can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever. And you can earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up is the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Yan, Brady, and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference along with my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun, with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge. They are inviting the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption and from mining to lightning. Whether you want to attend or sponsor the event, you can find out more at pacificbitcoin.la, which is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N dot L-A. Next up, it is Ledger, and the world's most popular wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. With a larger screen, it is now easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same level of high security as all other Ledger products. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Morning, Zell. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. So you're eighth coffee of the day. Third. Third. Hey, so we're back. And uh, we're both uh, still degenerate vapors, which is very good. You should have taken the bet. Yeah, I should have. Should we, do, should we go again? No. You don't want to do it? We can't start every episode this way. <laughs> well, I, I think I can stop tomorrow. No, you can't. I think I can. I don't believe you. <laughs> Mate, how have you been? How's your week been? How many people have you had a fight with on Twitter this week? Oh, man. Yeah, I like really came out of my, my Twitter shell. I was did. beefing with a lot of no-coiners. It was fun. Yeah, what happened? Tell people what happened. It's been a big week for you. 
yeah. And congratulations, by the way, the, what you and well, tell people what you and Gladstein have been doing because it was fucking awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So I guess at the time of this recording, uh, about a week ago, a group of global tech experts in, you know, heavy air quotes, wrote a letter to Congress uh, where they say they advocate for uh, responsible financial innovation. Uh, They say in the letter that blockchain, crypto, Bitcoin, all of this stuff is just like fundamentally useless, evil, you know, sort of solutions in search of problems. Uh, yeah. And it's like a terrifying message because it completely ignores the real world experiences of people that have used Bitcoin not to speculate, um, or even save in, but offer them access to finance when nothing else worked. So they sent this letter to Congress. They made a big deal about it. Who organized it? Who was Stephen Deal, uh, chief technology oh, officer of a private fucking... blockchain startup trying to loot public goods and take them for himself. And hold on, hold on, a private blockchain startup. Yeah, yeah, adjoint. Huh. So literally, like most of his work, uh, from what I've seen on GitHub, is just like forked off of innovations that have actually happened in the blockchain world. So like you know rollups and all of this stuff, like. Yeah, he's just kind of forking things that people have open sourced, turning it into a private blockchain and private company, and of course going after his competitors as one does. Hold on a second, hold on. We're going to have to go back a step here. I think I'm blocked by him. Me too. Is he the guy who routinely does threads, attacking Bitcoin, and maybe crypto as well, but I've only seen the Bitcoin ones, but he doesn't allow replies. He switched off the replies. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's him. Uh, he, okay. he kind of looks like a malnourished elf or leprechaun. Can you, can you try and bring him up, Danny? I just yeah. want to yeah. check um, him. He looks like a, a malnourished leprechaun. What's his name? Sorry, Stephen Deal. Yeah, let's let's have a look. Hold on. I just want to make sure Good it's morning. the same guy. Good morning, Peter Schiff. Good morning, Peter Schiff. How are you today? Fine, sir. Yeah, because if if it's who I think it is. I actually think he blocked me after giving a reasonable reply. Oh, sure. But, but uh, there's every chance I retweeted it and tore... This guy. Yes. Yeah, but, yeah, this guy. Okay. Uh, Let's see if he responded to the letter. Hold on. Crypto assets are indeed an ex- example of an economic technology, except it's one where the economist thinks it's rubbish and the technologist thinks it's rubbish. That's just fucking bullshit. Oh, that article oh, was and, and, and then he's retweeting Times. that New York Times article, which was based on data that was analyzed... What, in the first year and a half of Bitcoin's life? Yeah, it was, yeah. Absolutely moronic. Look at this. Uh, Web3 NFTs and cryptocurrency are dangerous to society and the planet, and computer scientists agree. So, I mean, that was the point of our letter, was to say that you can pretty easily... Hold on, that's not our industry. We're not Web3 NFTs. Exactly. And that that was sort of Alex and I's point, was you can very readily separate... the Bitcoin and stable coins, like the, the large, I don't mean like, you know, Luna, but the, the larger stable coins and Bitcoin uh, as being legitimately uh, life-saving. Keep, keep, uh, keep going, Danny. Uh, Web3 is stupid. Yeah, I mean, I agree with them on Web3 being stupid. Okay, so his whole account is dedicated now really to attacking uh, Bitcoin, crypto, NFT, yada, yada. But he's part of a private blockchain group. So he's built building something based on the fundamentals of Satoshi's, one of Satoshi's innovations. Yeah. Can, can you find this company? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I just want to get to oh, the he's, he's scrubbed all, in, you have to use Wayback Machine, because he's scrubbed a lot of the details on his web, a company's website that sort of confirm the way in which he's relying on 
yeah, uh, ultimately Satoshi's innovation, but also the work of people, I mean, sort of head nod to them, like a work of people outside of Bitcoin, but in the broader crypto world. Okay. Um, like he, 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 so, is so he is worse than a sort of web three Ponzi scammer because, uh, uh, he's not only eschewing the principles of Bitcoin like they do, but then eschewing the principles of like open source software. And yeah, he wants to take whatever utility he can find in what should be free and open source public software and just like loot it uh, a public good for himself. That's, see, I thought I just it's thought disgusting. he was. I thought he was ideologically just against Bitcoin. You know, you get people ideologically yeah. against it; they think it's criminalism. Or yeah, it's or shit. they read the like David Columbia stuff and yeah. they think it's you know just uh, uh, you know super right wing you know QAnon. Uh, yeah, they, they think it's an example of what uh, you know, like Richard Hofstadter would call the paranoid style in American politics. You know the. The, the nutters, basically, that have been around forever. You find anything, Danny? Right. We'll, we'll have a look later. Uh, can you find their letter that they wrote? Mm-hmm. I haven't actually read the letter. Yeah, so we mirrored their website exactly. So they registered the domain concerned.tech. Concerned.tech. Tech. So oh I just, I, I saw this and, uh, you know, obviously it was just like, wow, this is stupid. Gladstein called me and was like, yo, Zell, I've got a great idea. Um, but like, we need to figure out some way to respond uh, to this. So okay. I instantly registered the domain uh, financialinclusion.tech, which you can pull up next to. So they've got... Let's just read this one second. Danny, can yeah. you scroll to the top? We're, we're uh, concerned.tech. Okay, so it's got some quotes. Crypto bosses flex political muscle. Tech experts urge Washington resist, blah, blah, blah. If you're, con- if you're a concerned computer scientist, technologist, or developer, and think that the status quo on crypto assets is not sustainable... Well, part of that I actually agree with. Please join the growing voice in the community that stands for responsible financial innovation by signing the letter. Okay, uh, this is where it frustrates me because I would rather have Bitcoin and crypto separated because I think some of crypto is yeah. unsustainable, but I, I think Absolutely. they're going to be talking about uh, global warming and energy use. And so, it, so if you go to a new tab and you go to financial... Hold on, Danny, can you click on signing the letter? Is that just signing? Yeah, where just is takes, the letter? That's the letter right there. Scroll down. The letter is just a Google form. So this is who they send it to. Okay, dear U.S. Congressional Leadership Committee ranking members, we are 1,500 computer scientists, software engineers, and technologists who have spent decades working in these fields producing innovative and effective products for a variety of applications in the fields of database and blah, 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 blah. We strongly disagree with the narrative peddled by those with a financial stake in the crypto asset industry that these technologies represent a positive financial innovation in a way any suited to solving the financial problems facing ordinary Americans. Blah, blah, blah. Keep scrolling, man. Have they got any uh, blockchain technology? Have they done anything on, like, sustainability? Here we go, here we go. Speculation. Uh, massive. Oh, right, here we go. Other significant externalities include threats to national security mm-hmm. through money laundering and ransomware attacks, financial stability risk from high price volatility, speculation and susceptibility to run risk, massive climate emissions from the proof-of-work technology utilized by some of the most widely traded crypto asset and investment. So the annoying thing is, is like, I wish this separated uh, Bitcoin and... um, Oh, fucking hell. Lead signatories. Okay, scroll. David Gerard. All right, well, he's a cunt, so fuck him. Uh, Stephen Deal is a cunt. Um... Sorry, that's the second time. Kelsey Hightower took his name off of this list, by the way, after debating Gladstone. Yeah, Nicholas Weaver is also a cunt. Um, Dave Troy. 
Uh, Dave Troy is like the lead QAnon basically guy now. I mean, this isn't really a credible list of people. This is just a bunch of morons. Again, I'm sorry for swearing, but you know, sometimes you have to do it. Yeah. Uh, okay, typical bullshit. By the way, just reminded me, did you see this morning what um, uh, uh, Salesforce have announced? No. They've announced their NFT platform. You should find that as well, because even in their on their promotion, they're saying right. it doesn't you it like they start attacking proof as well as well. Of course, yeah, yeah of course. Knows. So okay. this is the website I made. Okay, uh, I, so I registered the domain financialinclusion.tech, uh, and you know, uh, basically worked for seventy two hours straight with Alex, and uh, you know, we put we made a response, um, and essentially our our response is is quite simple. You know, if you go back to that letter, they say. You know, there's uh, these are solutions in search of problems with an abject lack of utility that represent no positive benefit to society. Well, empirically, that's just false. Uh, for the quite literally billions of people that you can sort of separate into a t- two main baskets, either unjust uh, restrictions to finance, whether that's because of authoritarianism, misogynist banking policy, uh, or or sort of lack of infrastructure, or second people that are facing crisis, whether it's war, uh, economic instability, currency devaluation, whatever, quite literally more than half of the world uh, uh, experiences problems like that, that you know, n- basically no one in the West can really imagine. Uh, and over the last few years, uh, human rights activists have noted that Bitcoin and stablecoin have worked when nothing else did. So, so their, their letter basically relies on taking the lived experiences of millions of people and, and just saying, I don't care. You, you know, your problems are not worthy of being solved. Well, uh, this is what I was saying to Nicholas Weaver yesterday, because he does it from his point of privilege in Berkeley. Exactly. So, so if you look at our letter, right, we have people from 20 countries, Cuba, North Korea, Palestine, Lebanon, Nigeria, uh, Togo, Eritrea, uh, th- these people, every single signatory of their letter, except for two, enjoys the euro or dollar system, Hold which on. 80-something percent of the world does not. You said responsible crypto policy, not Bitcoin. Is that wider acceptance that you need crypto for stablecoins? Well, we just wanted to make it clear what we were talking about, because uh, okay. they're talking about crypto policy as well. And it, it's worth noting that uh, you know all, all of these activists really do like stable coins as well. They, they use both stables and Bitcoin uh, was the sort of main sort yeah, of speaking yeah. to these people. These are sort of the main feedback. Like it's not like human rights activists are just yield farming, uh, but it's, it's worth including stable coins uh, as well. So yeah, we wrote this letter um, and I made the website. Scroll down, Danny. And I think it's telling that in just like two and a half days, uh, you know, we had activists from 20 different countries, uh, including Gary Kasparov. Yeah, keep going. That's uh, what I want to say. I want to see who you've got signing. Yeah. Uh, okay, Fode is amazing. Fadi's amazing. Um, I'm trying to see who I know. Leopoldo Lopez, yeah. Um, Gary Kasparov. Alex. Yeah, I mean, this is just a great group of people. Yomi Park. Yeah, great group of people. Okay, yeah, great. Brilliant. Yeah. Good on you. Fuck those guys. And, and, and to the crypto point, that's sort of our, our, our second point. So we say, first of all, t- to make the argument that you're making, you have to just ignore and hand wave away uh, people that have experienced horrors that you couldn't imagine uh, and who just say outright, I have needed Bitcoin uh, when nothing else could work. Um, the second is that 
it is dangerous, uh, like you alluded to earlier, to lump this entire industry together when you're sort of making these critiques. Uh, the difference in utility that like uh, yield farming yams has uh, for, the, for the world versus an open permissionless monetary network, uh, it, it, those two things don't belong in the same sentence. So that's our second point. Of course there are scams. Of course the, the broader blockchain crypto industry is rife with bullshit, but you can very clearly through just listening to the stories of real human beings separate Bitcoin and stable coins as, as having a massive social good. Um, and, and, and you never see that expressed, right? Like uh, criticisms of, of, of Bitcoin are almost universally uh, presented without any nod toward potential benefit to society. So that's why we wanted to do this letter because there's no way to really respond to it. It's not an argument. It's just, we listened to activists who have faced tyranny, who have faced currency devaluation, who have suffered uh, under the current financial system, have turned to, to find a solution and found Bitcoin waiting for them. Um, you know, so it's just kind of a, a slap in the face. And we wanted to make sure that Congress knew that, that these technologies were not uh, solutions in search of problems, that the problems are very real. And just because you can't imagine what it would be like to not be sure if the money in your bank account will be there tomorrow, uh, uh, it's not easy for people in the West to imagine why Bitcoin might be useful. Uh, so we wanted to platform the stories of, of people for whom Bitcoin has been phenomenally useful. And like if you see the quote on the, the top page there, I mean, even recently with Russia, Ukraine, I know that was politicized, but the, the, the main takeaway was that in those first few days after the invasion, uh, everything went to shit, nothing worked. And so you get the president of a large uh, human rights organization in Ukraine, who's one of the first signatories of this letter, because she said, we had to use this stuff. And, and she literally says that, that Bitcoin, she credits Bitcoin with saving the lives of, of her friends. If that's an abject lack of utility, then I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're probably just a piece of shit if you can read something like that and say that, you know, Bitcoin is an obvious net negative for society. It reminds me of the conversation we had the other day with uh, Craig Wormsky, mm. where we talked about, uh, we discussed the ideas with regards to be, trying to be objective with regards to Bitcoin. There are people within Bitcoin who are incentivized to promote it because we have skin in the game. Like, how do we get to a point where we, uh, it's what Weinstein said to me, we're not um, selling our own book, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is a difficulty. There is a difficulty when you set to benefit from this, um, but at the same time you you're trying to promote uh, uh, you're trying to promote the the growth and the the regulatory protection for everyone else. You you kind of have you can have a bias, um, and you, what you should do is have an equal job of also recognizing the negative externalities or the negative second and third order effects from having Bitcoin. And it's a really useful exercise to go through. I, I did that with Craig. Um, but in that, in, in this paper, we, Danny, we should put that paper in the um, sure. in the show notes for this because he had this bit where he uh, was looking at people who are negative towards Bitcoin. Can you get that quote out? Because it was brilliant. And he's talked about there's people who essentially discovered Bitcoin early on. They had the, rele like the relevant skills to be able to... Uh, maybe, see why it matters. See why it matters. Didn't maybe buy it. Didn't buy it. And then they get there is an equal and opposite incentive uh, with 
you know, I, I've seen people say on Twitter, uh, next page, any article about Bitcoin or crypto ought right. to disclose That's whether it. or not the author owns it. I, I think that there's an equal and opposite bias that comes from having had the opportunity to buy Bitcoin and then not that also should be disclosed. If you're writing an yeah. article and you're one of these people who tweeted about why Bitcoin is going to zero in 2013, I have a hard time believing you're not just as biased as someone that has a bag. This is exactly what he's talking about. So many had the, ch I'm quoting it from this, many had the chance to buy Bitcoin early, but chose not to, even though their areas of expertise should have enabled them to see Bitcoin's early potential. Given the enormous returns of early Bitcoin investors, we'd expect many early critics to double down as critics after seeing that being a critic early on cost them millions. This is the bit that kills me. It's hilarious. As someone who has lost money on options trading, I know firsthand how painful it can be to admit such mistakes. So I can't imagine how painful it must be to admit publicly that despite being in the right place at the right time, with all the requisite background knowledge, you cost your family generational wealth by, by being wrong, not just once, but continuously over several years. I think that's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And he's done this thing below, uh, this uh, chart. The solidity coefficient. The solidity <laughs> coefficient. To, I once collaborated on a solidity coefficient to measure how salty and therefore how biased a critic might be uh, given Bitcoin's price at their first public condemnation. It's utterly brilliant. But he's right, and you're right. You know, if we should know if someone holds an asset, we should know if they've missed the opportunity. Yeah. And these people, David Gerard is one of them. I mean, David Gerard at one point was wanting Bitcoin. And he's made it his life's work to attack Bitcoin. Yeah. And some of these people have made it their life's work. And what they've done, they haven't adjusted their mental model as Bitcoin has evolved, as we've learned more about Bitcoin and what Bitcoin can do for people. What they've done is they've adjusted their arguments against the new arguments. Yeah. Which makes them not objective. Like, you will and I will, will happily criticize Bitcoin. Sure. Criticize its flaws. And There's stuff in David Gerard's uh, book that's true, right? Like, it, it's not like they're just making stuff up. But it, once you sort of become like a professional no-coiner, uh, the nuance that you're referring to is not incentivized. And, and, and to the point of incentives, uh, you know, show me a... a sort of policy debate or debate in society generally where there are not large financial incentives on both sides. Uh, I think people take this, you know, unfounded glee when they sort of note that positive writing about Bitcoin, uh, uh, you know, is, is tied to financial interests because someone might own it. Like what a naive view of the world. Uh, that, that's, I mean, that, that logic can be applied to quite literally anything. There are people with financial stake in, any change of any deviation from the status quo, I would confidently yeah. say has like meaningful financial incentives on both sides. So yeah, you have to try to recognize that and, and know sort of what the bias of your source will be. But uh, if you take financial incentive as uh, an excuse for just kind of dismissing uh, research or thoughts on a, a topic, then you know, you won't be able to consume any content, right? <laughs> like well, it'll all be, except for the stuff that, your bias tells you is true. That, that's the one I think one of the big issues with the climate change debate is the massive financial incentives there. You've got lobbying from groups who benefit from fossil fuels. Yeah. And you've got people who will benefit from the curtailment of use of fossil fuels and moving into green energy. Right. You've got people creating ESG indexes who are the investors. That's probably people like BlackRock who are the investors in the ESG companies are set to benefit from right. the promotion of that. So every area of that well, is controlled mean, by financial incentives. And both sides pretend like it's not there. 
right? Like it's a debate about government expenditures in some ways and subsidies like the, the fossil fuel crowd will, you know, seldom kind of uh, admit that there are massive, massive fossil fuel subsidies in the United States. They'll point out the renewable energy crowd and say in and, and Tesla and rightly point out that, it, you know, uh, subsidies can create perverse incentives. You know, the old saying like taxes pick winners, subsidies pick losers. They'll point out the green subsidies and say, well, this is hogwash and evil. Uh, and then the, 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 the same thing is true in the inverse. The, the people who defend renewable energy uh, will rightly point out that there are horrible incentives created by fossil fuel subsidies, uh, but won't point out some of the, you know, that's why we did. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of a, a carbon tax fan, to be honest. Okay. Uh, really? Yeah. I just think every system will be abused. <laughs> yeah, that's well, I, yeah, that, and that's the trouble with it. Like, I don't know if I would actually support a carbon tax in practice because it deter- it sort of rests on the ability of some centralized point of information and truth to determine what the negative externality of a certain amount of carbon emissions is. Uh, and that's where it falls apart. But, but the sort of broad, like, I think you can reason through like first principles really easily, like a carbon tax. And that's kind of a reason it's a, it's a very wonky thing, uh, like a policy wonky thing, but you see center left and center right people kind of tend to converge on it because, uh, you know, it's not a crazy assumption to say that uh, a transaction, uh, is fine if it's between two consenting parties. Right. Uh, and it's also reasonable to say that uh, a transaction can have impacts on people who are not part of that transaction. It doesn't make those impacts uh, any less valid, nor does it make them any re- less relevant in kind of a calculation of uh, uh, the the impact of that transaction. So, you know, y- y- if I own land next to a lake and you buy the land from me, uh, that's totally fine. But if you start dumping, you know, toxic pollutants into the lake and that water goes downstream and starts affecting the health of people in the nearby community, you know, I, I'm not a fan of just kind of saying, oh, well, that's the market. You know, this guy owned the land and like, who cares? So, so yep. in theory, the, the whole point of a carbon tax is that it kind of just gets rid of the whole subsidy debate. It gets rid of it's just like let the market sort it out. Like there is an externality to the emission of carbon. Like I would stand by that. I know I'll probably get heat for it. I, I agree <laughs> with you. There, there is an externality. The, the question is how much. And it, it, given the current state of things, I would have a hard time trusting that uh, whoever was sort of determining what that tax would be would land at a, at a reasonable number. And, and that's where it sort of falls apart. But yeah, in, in, in theory, I think a carbon tax makes uh, a lot of sense because then you can just kind of move past it and say, all right, like I'm going to pay whatever my small tax is that attempts to offset for the societal harm of carbon and then move on with your day. Like if we had a carbon tax, I don't think the Bitcoin ESG FUD would even exist, right? Who cares? Like that, that's kind of the point. It's you're, you're sort of paying for your emissions and then you can, everyone can move on with their day. Would it not, would, would we not just have SG? What do you mean? Well, ESG is environment, social governance. Yeah. Bitcoin is ESG. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Right. Uh, like that's the whole point of the S. Uh, that everyone seems to, to, and of course, ESG is an obvious scam, uh, like it, as a, it's a BlackRock tool to say that some bombs are better for the environment than others. Like ESG is nonsense, but uh, it's, the, a, it's the, a BlackRock idea for them to profit off their investments. Removed from kind of ESG as this like corporate framework and thinking about it more from the lens of should we evaluate how certain investments affect, uh, you know, the environment, society, and governance. 
Like, sure, whatever. Bitcoin, by that logic, is, is wonderfully ESG. It has a massive social good. It has unclear net implications for the environment, but likely to be positive in many ways and, and certainly not worth the alarmism that we've seen. Um, and I think, yeah, so, so Bitcoin is 100% ESG. It, it, what's funny, actually, about the ESG frameworks and Bitcoin, there was a paper that came out last year uh, that found that, uh, I'm going to try to quote this exactly, uh, Bitcoin is characterized by a low, a relatively low carbon intensity uh, when compared to uh, the average equity uh, in a typical American's portfolio. Uh, so basically they compare owning equities and owning stocks and bonds versus owning Bitcoin. And what they actually conclude, you know, accounting for multiple hash rate price scenarios, all of this stuff, uh, that if you have no Bitcoin and just an average portfolio of stocks, if you rebalance your portfolio and add Bitcoin, you're actually reducing, in most cases, the carbon intensity of your investments. So the next time someone asks you if Bitcoin is, you know, uh, uh, bad for the environment, ask them if they own stocks, because like literally just owning like the S and P 500 is contributing to more emissions than, uh, than, than owning Bitcoin. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's just pretty silly. Um, we, yeah. Anyone, <clears throat> anyone watching the video is going to be like, a drink has suddenly appeared. We have just got drinks. Yeah. Interestingly, my brother just texted me. He's obviously listened to another show at me because he said, Pete, uh, I don't think you should be using the C word in the show. And I know he's right. He's right. I shouldn't be. But it's just some people. Um, okay. I just want to go back a step. <laughs> back to the letters. Yeah. Do these get read? How important are they? Um do they get read? Yeah. Yeah. They get read whether or not every person that we sent the letter to is going to, you know, mull it over. I have no idea. Um, but, but there's multiple reasons you do this. One is because these stories are real, uh, and there's no one else covering it. There's no one else housing this content for a while. It was just like Gladstein traveling around the world, meeting with people and hearing their stories and experiences and then writing like Bitcoin magazine articles. So, uh, there's the, sort of utility of housing this type of content on a easily shareable link uh, and publicizing it. Second is the, the, uh, the media coverage. So CNBC picked it up. I saw, so they ran an article that said, you know, Bitcoin or, uh, you know, 21 activists send a letter to Congress saying Bitcoin helps them in the face of currency collapse. Uh, so, so that's part of it as well. Um, how much it's going to influence directly uh, the debate around crypto is unclear. I think the my, my aspiration is that it shifts the Overton window. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, so much of the criticism on Bitcoin is tough because you have people that are isolating negative externalities. Uh, and, and of course, if you just only discuss the negative impacts of something, it doesn't much matter how how negative it is. If something is just marginally negative with zero utility, of course it's bad. Of course it's a waste of energy. Fentanyl. Yeah, right. Uh, but but when, you, when you want to evaluate something fairly and you want to craft good policy, you need to see, okay, what are the benefits and risks of this? And so what I hope that this letter does, among other things, uh, is recenter uh, the lived experiences of people that are less fortunate than us. I hope that it introduces and solidifies within the debate on crypto and Bitcoin in particular, uh, 
that there are people's lives at stake. This isn't just sort of financial speculation. This isn't just people coding in their mother's basement. This is people that are facing some of the worst circumstances that a human being alive today could uh, and are relying on Bitcoin and stable coins to help them. Uh, and so next time, uh, you know, there's a hearing on Bitcoin or crypto. Uh, uh, I, I would like to think that there is recognition of this social value that frames criticism. Yeah, I disagree with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people who want to just hand wave away things like ransomware, cybercrime, like whatever, like all these kind of petty arguments that you hear people make about Bitcoin. I get it, right? If you're the government, you want to know uh, uh, the impacts of this stuff on your, your whole operation. Uh, but at the same time, you need to know that it's a vital tool for democracy uh, abroad as well. You need to know that it's a vital tool for some of the world's most vulnerable He reminds me well. of uh, Peter Van Valkenburg's Senate testimony. If you can find that, that's amazing. It's so good. Where he was like, Look, it's that, that, that is like a truly inspiring like speech. He, yeah. he crushes that. Yeah. What was it he said? For every criminal who, something along the lines, if Danny can find it, that'd be good. But for every criminal who uses um, uh, Bitcoin, you know, for X reason, there's somebody in Nigeria is using it to uh, as an activist against police brutality. For every person who uses it for ransomware, there's somebody. So he 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 spelled it out that there are these right. trade offs. I, I think that's actually very similar in structure to the debate about social media, um, right? Yeah. So if you, it's so easy to find examples of if you. You're someone who's tried to quit Twitter before, yeah, and too people, hard. you know, you, yeah, ever fuck Twitter. Uh, um, I love it, really. Yeah, of course. But when you just look at some of the negative externalities of social media, it's easy to make a case that this stuff is just awful and toxic, yeah. right? Fucks your brain, your attention span, your serotonin, makes people addicted. It makes them less able to engage with like long form content. Terrible for um, discourse, polarizes people. Misinformation. Yeah. yeah, but then what about the fucking Arab Spring? Yeah, I know. Well, so here's or my... any issue. If there's any issue now that you hear about and it's suddenly breaking news, the first place you go to is Twitter because there's people on the ground reporting. Yes. And so my position is that social media is obviously a net good, but not without myriad downsides. Um, and so, yeah, you can take all of these, these sort of negative impacts of social media, which, which notice, by the way, that all of those are very sort of first world problems. Oh, the quality of my information is deteriorating or my, you know, sort of technology that would astonish, uh, would be unbelievable to almost any human being that's ever lived on the planet. I have the collected knowledge of mankind in a rectangle in my pocket and, and just be pissed about it because of some, you know, negative. And, and so, yeah, then you get the Arab spring, right? Yep. And so you recognize that there is this sort of uh, fundamental public utility uh, of being able to spread information quickly and efficiently to anyone anywhere in the world. Yeah, there which is, is exactly what Bitcoin is. With value. Yeah. So there is this similar value in being able to exchange value instantly to anyone anywhere in the world. And so I, I really think that we will see over the coming decades uh, the Arab Spring moment uh, for, for Bitcoin uh, in, in the same way that people were using Twitter in the Middle East to coordinate protests and keep these fights uh, against authoritarianism afloat. Uh, what will happen when 
as finance increasingly becomes digital, we move away from cash, we give governments, both liberal and illiberal, uh, an increasing ability to financially police, surveil, seize, etc. You can't exercise your First Amendment rights unless you spend money, right? You know, we have the First Amendment right guaranteed to us to petition the government, to free speech, to lobby. Well, how are you going to get to D.C. to go talk to those people? You're going to buy a plane ticket. How are you going to go do your march or your protest? Well, you got to pay 50 bucks for a protest permit and you got to get the whiteboard and uh, Sharpie to make your sign or whatever. And, and so implicit, fundamental to the ability of free expression or to the right of free expression, to the ability to carry out a protest against an unjust government, you have to be able to transact. Um, and so where you saw states uh, over, you know, sort of the last 75 years, like authoritarian states use this centralized power that they had over information to quash dissent. Uh, then the internet comes and they no longer have that ability. You see now, I think the same thing, but with value where Bitcoin, like the internet uh, and social media allowed for this free exchange of, of information, uh, Bitcoin will do the same thing, but with value. And uh, when governments who don't want their unjust acts, their authoritarianism brought to light or challenged, they will shut down the bank accounts of every protester and, and render them incapable of not only exercising some abstract, you know, right to speech, but to, to life itself. Uh, and it's stories like that, that don't, that make a conversation about Bitcoin using 0.18% of global energy just ludicrous when they're not included like front and center. We need to say that this is a technology that uh, uh, ostensibly helps millions of people and also uses 0.18% of global energy, uh, not just focusing on its energy usage and ignoring. And, 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 that, and that, Peter, is the point of the letter, is that next time someone says, some first world trivial problem of Bitcoin. Like, you know, social media is bad because it, you know, people cyber bully you because you're Peter McCormick and you're a statist. Like, <laughs> um, you know, when people talk about problems that are on that tier that they have with Bitcoin, you point them to this website. Well, you say, tell these people who, who have come to rely on Bitcoin that, you know, they don't matter and that your first world problems are more important than their oftentimes life or death struggle. Well, maybe we should organize a field trip. We should go up to Berkeley, get Nicholas Weaver, pick him up a, a chai latte on the way, fly him down to Venezuela and let him, let's take him to Cucuta, let him actually see what's happening on the border of Venezuela and Colombia. Actually see the difficulty people have because they don't have any fucking money or access to money. Let yeah. him see thousands I don't, I don't of people. I think he cares. He would say that they're Peter Thiel hired crisis actors. <laughs> yeah, but this is, this is the point, is that you have to get out of your own uh, uh, liberal Western democracy bubble and see what real life is like for the majority of the planet, which is a bit shit which is either under double or even triple digit inflation. It's no access to uh, banking services. It is being trapped under authoritarian regimes, not having any... I mean, you guys have First Amendment. We, we have pretty crappy free speech laws in the UK, but the UK yeah. is pretty good compared to China. I can still go down to Downing Street and stand outside the gates of number 10 and call Boris Johnson a wanker, and I won't be arrested. You know, we, we have those freedoms. Right. We have, you know, but we live in pretty developed Western liberal democracies. Bitcoin is good for us. Yeah. It's still good for us. It's good for the Canadian truckers who want to protest. You know, it's good for us. It's good for everybody. Yeah. And so these, Bitcoin these, is, let's, get, let's do a field trip. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think you'd take us up on it. But, but it's worth noting, though, that, uh, you know, one of the signatories to that anti-crypto letter, uh, Grady Booch, responded to my tweet and said, I mean, it's just this ridiculous tweet. He said, uh, 
I have never sort of denied that there are people like the ones in your letter, of course, people who live in, you know, third world countries or under authoritarians uh, uh, could possibly benefit from this. Uh, and, and, and so my response was, then why'd you sign this letter? <laughs> like, because the letter doesn't say Bitcoin offers social utility to people in extreme poverty, crisis, authoritarian. You know, it says that there's an abject lack of utility and a solution search in, in search of problems. So that sort of puts Grady in a bit of a double bind, right? He either just doesn't agree with the letter he signed uh, and should have written his own, or he thinks that he gets to be the arbiter of which problems are real and constitute problems and which problems are, you know, fake. You, you can't sign something that says there's an abject lack of utility, no positive benefit to the world, and a solution in search of problems while just readily admitting that, oh yeah, everything in that letter is true. Like, you're either a really unthoughtful or really unempathetic person, if that's your perspective. And, and there's not really escaping that. Like, yeah, you either just didn't read the letter and weren't paying attention, or you did and just decide that some problems are worthy of your consideration and others you can just hand wave away. What do you think is the mental model for people in Congress to be considering things like this? There's a lot of considerations for something like Bitcoin. So let's there's everything from this is money we don't control. Mm. This is money that people can use without us being able to track at times. Right. You know, we know some tracking can be done. But this is also uh, uh, money which uh, kind of offers, well, it's a commodity that offers some freedom, which obviously some people within the U.S. are much more, like in Congress level, care about freedom or claim to care about freedom. But then there's this myriad of things it does globally for other states. The U.S. has uh, routinely uh, done a mixture of interfere, but also help people in other states. I'm not going to say everything the U.S. has done is bad. We can we can equally spot what's everything that's happened in Iraq and agree that's terrible. But we can also uh, recognize other programs that come from out of the U.S., uh, which have helped people in other countries. It is yeah. a complicated picture. How do you think the mental model works for these people? Is well, it all, does it all come down to what their constituents think and, and maintaining power? Or do you think there are people who are genuinely in Congress who are ideologically driven to do good? Well, that's a lot of questions. Yeah, I, uh, I would start by sort of saying that, you know, you, you sort of point, point out the adventurism in the Middle East as like a prime example of bad U.S. policy. And then you sort of allude generally to uh, things that the U.S. government does that maybe aren't so bad. One example of that is that the State Department, you know, funds pretty significantly uh, internet infrastructure all over the world. Why? The internet's not American. Uh, the internet is open and more or less decentralized. No single party really controls the internet. It brings with it both great benefits and, and some costs, uh, but we fund it. Why? Uh, we, we fund it because the internet at its core uh, represents the fundamental values of Western liberal democracy, uh, free and open exchange of information. It's, it's sort of the, the bedrock of the trend of globalization has been that the internet was able to connect and empower people who previously would have never, much sort of never even interacted, much less uh, uh, collaborated together on a project via Zoom or like Google Docs. So I, I think Bitcoin is, is the same way. Uh, where the internet is not controlled by the United States, we have disproportionately benefited from it. And in large part, that's because we've made it a great place for, you know, for, for most of the internet's existence to be a tech entrepreneur, whether it's uh, sort of our strong IP laws, uh, uh, you know, taxes, whatever. 
there is a set of environments through policy that the United States has crafted that has allowed it to take a disproportionate stake in the success of the internet. Um, and so I, I think my general framework for talking to about, uh, about Bitcoin uh, to, to staffers or to politicians, it's really not that different uh, from just a, a normal tech policy issue. Like, that's the story of tech regulation is that the government crafts laws and then technologies that no one could have foreseen uh, for which laws could not have accounted uh, develop. And then people have to figure out, okay, what is this stuff? How do we cap its potential downside? And how do we maximize its upside for us? Um, and it's a, it's a natural thing. Uh, there are so many examples throughout history of technology uh, stripping away some facets of state power um, and everyone kind of having to just readjust and reorganize around that. So the printing press, it was only the Catholic church that could create and disseminate information. The printing press gets invented. All right, genie's out of the bottle. Now anybody can go print information. Then the internet happens. Now anyone can take that information and send it anywhere to anyone. Then Bitcoin happens. Now anyone can take value and use the rails of the internet uh, to send and exchange value anywhere in the world. Uh, and like those other two examples, I think the printing press and the internet, yes, had some risks, but were like quite obviously and especially in hindsight, wonderfully net positive. So, well, this takes me back to this thought experiment from Craig Warnsky. Um, what he was trying to do was explain that. Uh, People have a bias, they come with a bias, and you have to try and do a thought experiment to get people away from that and just explain to them two different worlds. There's a world with Bitcoin and a world without Bitcoin. But when you make the decision of the world you want, you have to strip away all your uh, experience, knowledge of your existence, everything you've been through. So you, when you go into that world, you don't know whether you're... So let's, let's use Elizabeth Warren. You don't know if you're going to come into that world as Elizabeth Warren or you're going to come into that as a Bangladeshi market trader. You've got no idea you could be dropped in North Korea. So if you don't know where you are going to be in that world, the odds of you coming out as a, a senator are very, very small. The odds of you coming out of just some normal pleb living in a third world country are a lot higher. Yeah. So if you don't know which world you're going to come into, but you have all the data and information on how the world works, would you want to live in a world with Bitcoin, well, with a form of money, which is open, permissionless, censorship resistant, you know, you can send value around the world instantly and free to anyone, or would you want to live in a world without that? Because you could be dropped into a place where you don't have banking services, you're under authoritarian rule, and there's a serious risk. And, and the, the thing that this highlights is the people who make the decision, the people who make these decisions are the one who have the biggest risk from these technologies. Therefore, they have an outweighted bias in making their decision. And it's super important. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and even from a self-interested lens, Peter, I think that policymakers will increasingly realize that properly considered Bitcoin is quite good for the United States. Mm -hmm. So Matthew Pines wrote a really good white paper for us on this called Bitcoin and national security. Yep. And he essentially makes like three very reasonable arguments uh, that are worth kind of going over. So the first argument that he makes is kind of what I alluded to, that Bitcoin has at its very core principles that line up well with democracy, what our notion and construction of civil liberties and rights, uh, and kind of just the traditional lowercase l, like liberal w w worldview, um, free markets, uh, uh, minimal government interference, personal liberty and autonomy, uh, these kind of natural God-given rights. Uh, 
and, and that the more people who use Bitcoin, the more America benefits, um, especially in a world in which countries like China are trying to make parallel institutions to those in the West. So you see uh, for you know, 40 years, the dominance of the International Monetary Fund, and then China comes out with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And now there's a new game in town. Uh, the same is true for most modern financial global infrastructure. You know, it's mostly been a Western thing. Now we are seeing parallel alternatives crafted by authoritarians. And those systems uh, are different in many ways, but most importantly is that they're closed. They're permissioned. They're surveillable. They readily enable things like social credit scoring. Uh, and so for every person who lives in a country who is experiencing uh, the problems of the decline of correspondent banking, something that like Mahler's talks about a lot, uh, who are looking around and trying to figure out what option they should use. Every person that picks Bitcoin rather than China's C uh, CBDC, that constitutes a win for uh, the United States. So for his first argument is this nice kind of just broad articulation of why Bitcoin is this very American thing, uh, the benefits of which are not always immediately direct, but positive for a country like the United States, who at least in principle uh, exists both to govern its country and also spread these democratic principles abroad. The second argument that Matthew makes is that uh, you kind of get in or miss the boat. And if we're able to, in the United States, by we, uh, is able to craft policies that encourage entrepreneurship and innovation to happen here, even if we don't control Bitcoin, in the same way that we don't control the internet, we can still position ourselves to experience a disproportionate benefit. You, you could almost think of it as like a quasi-seniorage, where if major exchanges, wallet providers, miners are located here, then as the network scales and more people use Bitcoin, uh, we, we're kind of setting ourselves up to do just fine. The second argument he makes is that there's this kind of just intuitive economic benefit of you don't want some of the smartest minds in cryptography and computer science leaving this country uh, to go start uh, products and services elsewhere. And then his... Go on, no, finish your third point. Well, yeah, and then his third point is all about sort of combating China. It's basically saying that uh, China has constructed a uh, system called the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I think people have probably talked yeah. about this in your podcast before. The TLDR version is that we are years away from having a CBDC in the United States, if, if ever. And so for right now, as China is rolling out DSEP, the name of its CBDC, uh, uh, and has you know, extensive trade relationships with the very people who are in the regions most underserved and increasingly underserved by the legacy financial system, it is useful for the United States to see the rise of an open, neutral monetary network that offers people... Uh, that offers people a choice because if you have to choose between a, a Chinese CBDC or Bitcoin, that choice is very obvious. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, if your choice is no other options or a Chinese CBDC, it's also very obvious which one you, you choose. And so I think that Bitcoin puts this like downward pressure on uh, the shittiness of government CBDC projects. <laughs> Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. 
Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin and wider crypto industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty in finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB and I could not be happier. BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this. If you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies, rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you may want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs too, and I am mining Bitcoin with Compass. I've been mining for over 10 months and have already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin, which has more than paid off two of my S19s. Anyone can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors such as price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I am happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. If you are interested in mining and you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, I'm still only buying. Come on, look at this market. It is the time to buy. We're not sellers right now, are we? Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying these dips, and I have also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did, all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also, we have Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Well, there's a very clear currency war at the moment as well yes. playing out. Um, there are clear issues with the dollar. Uh, China has been, as Steve McClurg told when he was on the show uh, yesterday, he said China has not been uh, accumulating U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, they clearly are spotting an opportunity if there is runaway inflation or issues with the dollar, or if there's um, um, that the, the China can position itself as being another reserve currency. And if you've got these uh, nations with particular interesting assets such as uh, airports and ports around the world and they are in requirement of money, they can become slaves to this new Chinese currency. Yeah, but, so the, the, but the place I was going with this is that I don't think the US can now beat China 
button at a currency level with its own currency. Because what does it, what, what choice it has? It has to either make a, a freer currency or they have to be better at control. And they're not going to be better at control because they're not going to go down the authoritarian route that China's gone down. Well, we'll see. Well, they might try, but they're not going to do it to the extent that China's done it because they don't have full control of the systems. You would not get away with a CBDC linked to a social credit score, linked to cameras, linked to full control of access to services like they've got in China. That's not going to happen in the US. It wouldn't get away with it. And if you try to, it would take so long to get through because civil liberty groups would protest against this. It would go to Congress, whereas China just gets to do it. So if you cannot beat them at control money, you have to beat them at freedom money. You have to create the most free money out there. Yeah. And the best thing is it already exists. They don't have to do anything, and that money will win. And, and currency competition is not something that should be treated with uh, concern. Like uh, Hayek writes about this in the denationalization of money quite well. Um, and Nick Anthony at the Cato Institute just put out a good policy brief on this as well, where he says the U.S. should actually welcome currency competition. Um, and I think he makes a similar argument to, to one that I have made, which is that uh, even if you don't use Bitcoin, you should appreciate its value in eliminating a monopoly. Like monopolies are bad. And almost everyone can kind of agree that when you have a monopolistic actor, they lose all incentive to be decent to their consumers. So uh, you can actually relate this going up the thread a bit. Uh, to the point about the IMF and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So from 1971 uh, uh, to like 2011, the average number of IM, IMF loan conditionalities was like 430 something. Uh, what, what that means is, you know, uh, when the IMF is sort of uh, uh, giving a country a debt relief package or a currency or a, gov a government experience of some crisis and the IMF is going to bail them out, they would attach with that money a set of conditions. Uh, and for, for years, some of the IMF conditionalities were, you know, lengthy and absurd, almost like Kafka-esque, like all these hoops you have to jump through. So how does China compete with the IMF when they launch the Asian Infrastructure Investment, Investment Bank? They do what you're saying America would do with, 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 with currency, they, no strings attached. They just start handing out cash to people. Well, very quickly, the average number of IMF conditionalities drops down to like 30. So this massive reduction because, you know, whether or not you like China, I'm not a fan of the CCP, but creating the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, creating this parallel institution eliminated a monopoly and everyone benefited. So how does that relate to Bitcoin? Uh, if you, like some of these CBDC advocates have pointed out, believe that there is value in creating a digital money uh, or even a necessity to create a digital money. It's very easily it's very easy to kind of just take whatever proposal you see for digital money and compare it to this like nebulous world and say, well, we need it, so we're going to use it. Now, they can't get away with that. They can't just say, oh, internet money is good, so we're making a CBDC, shut up and take your medicine. They have to prove that what they've created is better than Bitcoin. That's a really high bar. <laughs> and, and so I think that Bitcoin, uh, in the same way that uh, uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, put downward pressure on the conditionalities attached to IMF loans, it's just a random example, but uh, I, I think Bitcoin does the same thing with, with CBDCs. Because, and, and, and Xi Jinping will have to understand this as well insofar as his goal is to onboard people to uh, uh, the digital yuan. Why do you think he's banning Bitcoin? doesn't want people to be threat. able to compare the social credit system, the centralization, the surveillance uh, is sort of inextricably linked with the Chinese central bank digital currency and 
a free open source, open global permissionless monetary network. And I think that will actually happen here in the United States uh, to some extent as well. Um, I think that CBDCs built in a world with Bitcoin by very nature have to be better than whatever the government, what sort of Orwellian like panopticon the government would have developed without Bitcoin. Not, not that they won't be an Orwellian panopticon. They probably still will be anyway. But we're at least having conversations about digital cash, right? That's something that Bitcoin very, very explicitly changed about the, uh, and shaped about the CBDC debate. It's not just this recognition that uh, we need internet money and digital money for an internet and digital age. It's that these rights that we've had that were implicit, like the right to use cash, are starting to kind of slip away. And we actually can't be passive about this. We, we have to examine critically which of these kind of de facto rights that are being erased by technology do we choose to bring with us into the digital world? And cash is like a perfect example of this, where there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have a right to use cash, but none of the founding fathers could have ever imagined a world in which a transaction would by necessity be placed on a centralized repository accessible to the government. Um, and so if you view the Constitution as sort of a mediation of rights and privileges between people and states, the condition under which that contract was written was one in which cash was just the assumption. It was just the state of the world. Now, it's not entirely clear whether or not like my children will have cash, but I know that because Bitcoin exists, they will have a really viable cash alternative. Um, and so that's another way in which Bitcoin has influenced this debate where the government is now sort of going through great <laughs> efforts to say, oh, you know, our CBDC will be privacy protected. We promise we're going to retain we the promise. Pro we're going to retain, retain the properties of, of, of cash. So Bitcoin set this new, it set a floor. It said you, if we're, if the public is going to accept this, it can't just be money that has faster settlement speed. It can't, I mean, it can't be just money that's digital. It has to be cash. Uh, so, you know, the market will decide. And I just think people will have a hard time believing that uh, spending their $5 of Fed coin is the same as spending $5 of Bitcoin. Like if you want that experience of paying for something in cash, you're not going to feel comfortable using your CBDC for it. So. Well, a lot of people will because they have no idea what we're talking about. They have no idea of the threat. They're not red yeah, filled, and, but, and, and, that, and that's the thing is, you can get very far down this Bitcoin rabbit hole, and you do not understand the mindset of somebody who is a no coiner whose only exposure to Bitcoin is maybe seeing something in a tabloid newspaper, which is just some alarmist article about uh, climate change. It's a there's there's a lot to consume to get to the point of living a standard normie life right. where you go to work, you get paid, you pay your tax, you do your shopping, you go to the pub, to suddenly reconsidering your entire mental model around what is the role of money, how it operates, how the government issues it, what are the uh, cynical things they do. That's a big leap. You've got to do a lot of work, a lot of, you've got to do a lot of reading, listen to a lot of really cool podcasts. I, I wonder what the statistics on this would be, you know, if you just asked people, uh, you know, would you be okay if we got rid of cash? Like, I, I, I don't, I, I hear your point, but I also think that most people could, can recognize this like fundamental value to using cash. And it's a nice kind of opportunity to make this a really bipartisan thing as well. Um, but people, people are moving away from using, I haven't had a single dollar in my pocket this entire trip. Well, it's, it's not about, uh, you know, the sort of percentage of your transactions that are denominated, uh, in, in, or made in cash. 
It's about sort of the extant properties of cash, like knowing that I can have some in my wallet and knowing that I can choose to pay for certain things in, in cash. And there's like an endless amount of examples that you could get into where someone wants to pay for cash. You know, maybe you're taking medicine. You don't want, you know, someone to know that you're taking. Maybe you're buying a book about politics that's like a little edgy. You don't want someone knowing about that. Maybe but you're making a donation to a, a certain religious group or, or nonprofit. Like, I think those are really rare edge cases where people really think that through. I, I just think they are. I, I, I get it and I agree with you. I just don't think people have been red-pilled enough to really understand and think about it. Like, I, I bring this up time and time again. All my friends know I have a podcast, right? They know it's a Bitcoin podcast, okay? Of my group of friends, one of them knows a bit about it because he bought some, and but he trades and trades shit coins. If we go down the pub and talk about this, I sound like a nutter. Well, I sound, you just sound like a nutter in general. Well, no, no, but they think <laughs> I'm they think I'm mad. Okay. They yeah, think of I'm they think I'm a conspiracy theorist. They think I'm anti-state. But in the world of Bitcoin, I'm actually quite moderate. But in their world, I'm crazy. I'm telling you, they think I'm crazy. Yeah. My family did. We've got my brother there. We've orange-pilled my brother. It's taken some time. and He's in now. He gets it. But I'm just saying, it's a big leap. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a conversation that, like you said, I think a lot of people aren't ready to have. And in my view, it's one that we need to be debating very rigorously. And, and In the public it, and open. In, in the public, right. It, it's, it's wild to me that uh, as recently as like six or seven months ago, uh, both the Fed and um, the, just basically no agency in government, let me put it that way, was really willing to give comment on the CBDC proposals or e-cash proposals that they were like working on. Um, you can tell that if we were to just sort of leave this issue alone, the government would prefer that we all just wake up one morning and we're using CBDCs. And I, I just think this is truly an example where it's, it's yes, it's about the technical merits of a CBDC versus Bitcoin. And, you know, it's easy to have that argument, but it's deeper than that. It really is about which, which of these sort of fundamental assurances of living in America that are not codified in law, but in practice, do we risk eschewing when we move to an increasingly digital world? Like we have to be so vigilant about this. And it's terrifying to me that proposals for a CBDC uh, are, are just kind of happening uh, behind closed doors. Uh, and it's ludicrous that, you know, journalists are trying to get in touch with some of these, you know, uh, entities and they're just kind of declining to comment. Um, if the government is sort of pondering something that's going to strip liberties away from you and their response is no comment, then we, we need a lot of attention on that issue. What, what do you think uh, the founding fathers would have uh, written into the Constitution if, uh, if it was now? Ooh. Well, so it's interesting, right? You know, privacy. The word privacy is not in the U.S. Constitution. No, but you're mildly protected in the Fourth Amendment, right? Precisely. And, and so this is a, a, a good sort of uh, shoe in here. Although regularly the Fourth Amendment is, is brought up and it's... Uh... Yeah. So, so the, the word privacy is not in the Constitution. Uh, the Fourth Amendment you know, protects you against unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, but, would, but, you, but, would you call NSA, uh, reading every message, able to track and listen to every call, unfair search and seizure? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Right. Um, and it's still going on. Precisely. And so, so I'm, of course. But, Snowden's still living in Russia yeah. when he's actually, somebody's exposed something. Right. So yeah, the word privacy is not in the constitution. And 
I, I think it's probably it's for several reasons. Yes. It's because the fourth amendment you would generally expect, like what else would you kind of protect? Like how else would your privacy have been violated back then? You know, someone's looking through your window at your house. Like you're not going to put that in the constitution. So, uh, I don't know what would have been changed. That's a really tough question, but I think it's quite clear that the implications of the internet and distributed software, like fundamentally color the mediation of power between states and, and people that they grant governments un, unimaginable levels of, of surveillance. I think Hamilton of all of them would probably be a CBDC fan. I mean, he would be, he would enjoy, I think, um, the ability to kind of readily dictate monetary policy. Uh, I think Jefferson would be turning in his grave if uh, uh, he heard about like CBDC. But just say cash generally, even forget the technology argument, the, the, you know, if the, oh, the, oh, yes, hundred percent. You, know, you have I think, a right to free speech. You have a right to bear arms. Well, money is the a right to cash. I think would almost certainly be written in the Constitution. If we could travel back in time and say, "Hey, this is what the world looks like. Here's what's being debated by the government. Cash is like almost eradicated, and now every transaction, uh, uh, if some people have their way, will be logged onto." Uh, a single, you know, I don't really think they know what a database is. But, but I, think I think you're going too, even too far in that one. I, I, again, forget the technology argument. I'm saying the right to have, hold, and use cash. Yes. Because you have a right to free speech. Yep. Okay? You have a right to bear arms. Do you have a right to uh, monetary sovereignty? And I'm, what I mean is the risk of being cut off from the financial system. What you said at the start, you know, should that right exist? Should the government be able to switch you off from access to cash to money? Because yeah, that's yeah. that's the fundamental thing. You put the you 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 take a lot of people say the Second Amendment protects the First Amendment. Okay, but if there's nothing to protect money, you don't get any amendments. Yeah, and I think sometimes uh, hasn't the First Amendment been used to protect cash in some ways? Well, the coded speech. Yeah, the the jurisprudence that I've read has been pretty bearish on the argument that, you know, a transaction constitutes speech. I obviously feel quite differently. Um, to, to, to your point earlier, uh, that world where, you know, you say, uh, uh, should the government have a right to just have an on and off switch uh, uh, to people's finances? That was incomprehensible to the people that wrote this nation's charter documents. Uh, and so as such, I, I think that it, it makes it obvious, I guess, one, that that document is insufficient to properly represent like a fair mediation of like rights and powers in 2022. Uh, in 2022. And, and you know, yeah, I, I think I would like to think uh, that were the constitution written uh, with knowledge of what the world would look like today. I mean, I, I think a lot of the founding fathers didn't believe that that it's funny. Like if you read uh, kind of contemporaneous like writings by a lot of the founding fathers, I, I think they would have been thrilled if that document had made it 30 years. If that thing had lasted a generation, they would have been like, all right, like we did our job. Like we, I, I don't think any of them really truly thought that they, that America would still be using that same document centuries centuries later i yeah. mean i think that thought was incomprehensible to to most of them and and there's sufficient kind of evidence to suggest that 
this was like a, a rough draft. It was like a first stab. Like let's, let's put this on paper and, and try out this new America thing. But, and while they took the project very seriously, yeah, I, I think that they would all would have been, they all would have thought it was a success if their kids uh, were, were using this constitution. I, I don't think anyone thought that we would just kind of converge around this document and have it kind of ossify and, and just stay with us hundreds of years later. Like that, that would have been wild to them, I think. And yeah, I, I would like to think that they would have, included uh, with a knowledge of how the world would look now and that we'd still be using that document, a right to, to cash. How do you feel then? Okay, let me go back a step. Obviously, we've had Gillibrand's and uh, Senator Lumbus's, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Lumbus's bill has now um, been put forward and uh, there's some reaction. I think some, I think some Bitcoiners are naturally skeptical because it's like, don't regulate this shit, you know. Right. This has come from a place as, of, as they should be. As they should be, because it's come from a place of circumventing regulation. This is to subvert the state. But at the same time, Bitcoin has kind of crossed crossed the divide now. Yeah. Uh, crossed the chasm in some ways. Uh, I think Steve Blank wrote that book. Um, but it, it is now a part of uh, the financial system. It's part of culture. It's part of society. Everyone has heard of Bitcoin, certainly in the UK and the US and most uh, developed countries and, and a lot of developing countries we know right. now have, have heard of this. It, it is there. It's unlikely for this thing to exist in a world of governments without having some form of regulation. Yeah. So how, how do we square that circle where the kind of founding ideologies behind Bitcoin are now kind of having to, the edges are getting frayed because it is being, you know, Ted Cruz is talking about it. Um, we've got uh, Wall Street traders trading it. It is now a, a, both a ca- it's both cash and a commodity. How do we square that circle? Uh, do, do you think people have to kind of let go a little bit of their kind of like ideological goals for Bitcoin? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, it's a tough question. Uh, there's so many ways that you can take it. Um, gosh. Where I would start with that question would be to note that almost every counterculture movement that is picking up steam and starts to kind of get out of the mom's basement, so to speak, runs into this like inflection point where there is a direct trade-off between bringing this ideology, this counterculture, this movement to as many people as possible or, uh, uh, and I guess I should say, uh, retaining the ideological purity uh, that was in this kind of neatly constructed, poignant counterculture movement. Like there's this inevitable dilution of the uh, uh, specificity of the worldview that you sort of spread to more people. And so it becomes a question of what you view uh, the value of, of Bitcoin as. To me, the value of Bitcoin is global money. So I can reason from first principles very easily that global money won't work if it requires that everyone have the same view of the world. Like that's a ridiculous, like just yeah. on face. Yeah. So when, when someone says, you know, oh, you're not a Bitcoiner if you think this or think that, like if you expect this project to become a global money, uh, you kind of have to abandon quite quickly any hope that uh, it will sort of convert everyone to your particular view of the world. Um, which, that be- which, which interestingly is a top-down approach. Yes. Where really Bitcoin is bottom up. Yeah. And, and so what I would say about the, the sort of policy stuff is there are a couple ways you can look at it. One is that if, if you want Bitcoin to grow and spread and, and you want people to have access to Bitcoin, 
as quickly as possible, and you want development in the ecosystem, there is an argument to wanting that to happen in the United States. Like as much as people like to shit on America, uh, it's it's still for so many reasons I think uh, the best kind of place for uh, for innovation. You've got the strongest capital markets in the world, the strongest intellectual property rights in the world. You've got uh, a reasonably good place to innovate. So I, I would prefer for innovation on Bitcoin to be happening here um, from a time frame consideration uh, uh, and just a product quality and quality of innovation perspective. Uh, where it starts to get dicey is when regulation or proposed regulation um, isn't just written to, uh, uh, well, let me put it this way. The problem is when regulation is written or proposed that doesn't just kind of run afoul of a principle of Bitcoin that's as broad as uh, fuck the state, but instead a fundamental of Bitcoin's utility. Right. If the government is to propose, for example, a law that uh, restricted self-custody, yeah. that's where it's like, OK, yeah, that's that's horrible. Yeah. Right. It's not just that uh, uh, some regulation or policy is infringing on a kind of abstract notion of like libertarianism or anarchism. Like, sorry, that's going to happen. And it's been happening. Like Bitcoin has been regulated since, like you know, basically a couple of years after it was invented. What we have yet to see but worries me is regulation proposed that fundamentally kneecaps Bitcoin, at least in the United States that says, Oh, own all the Bitcoin you want. Give us your private keys. Yeah. Use your Chivo wallet, use your, you know, fed wallet. That That's something that, that, that is a world that is possible and one that we have to just like rigorously fight against. But I think the notion of just ignoring all regulation and ignoring policy battles and sort of, or, or even just kind of fighting everything uh, is is also quite silly. It dilutes the potency of your message when every single law or bill that mentions crypto or Bitcoin, you just kind of attack viciously. Like people are just going to stop listening to you, uh, at least in DC, pretty quickly. But you know, if you're kind of willing to recognize that, look, most of these laws just aren't going to affect Bitcoin that much. Like most of the concern isn't really on Bitcoin. I think. Regulators are far more concerned about uh, like neobanks, stable coins. Uh, recently with like Luna, they're more concerned about these just open and obvious like Ponzi schemes. I'm not too worried about Bitcoin's policy environment. Uh, and it's good that we have champions like Lummis in office. Uh, and, and I think that our sort of political capital is stronger when we conserve our energy for the fights that like really matter. Um, I think if you have an industry whose reputation in DC is just kind of throwing a tantrum every time the government talks about it, you know, who, no one's going to listen to you. Well, historically, freedoms have been fought for. Yeah. So if people want Bitcoin to be successful, they have to fight for its freedom to exist. But That's it, why it, the but early cypherpunk started the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I mean, the, yeah, and I think I said this on your last podcast, and it's like a, uh, a paraphrase from... Um, you know, Hal Finney, who said, you know, or who said that the notion that you can just sort of retreat into cyberspace and, you know, that will be sufficient to protect your privacy is, is ludicrous. Um, it is 
you know, whether or not it's moral or just or should be that way, it is very, very reasonable to operate from the assumption that if you want to keep your privacy and you want to keep your civil liberties and rights, that yes, in line with the kind of history of democracy, you will have to go to bat for those things and fight for them, both by building technology, yes, by building software that resists tyranny, but also by Educated. Convincing other people yeah. that privacy is worth protecting, convincing other people that having cash is important and having a digital alternative to cash is important. Do you think Bitcoin therefore needs its own constitution? I know we have consensus rules, <laughs> it's really a constitution, but like a set of principles that are, you know, they're red lines we won't cross, like self-hosted wallets are, you know, a must. I don't know about a formal document. No, I don't mean a formal. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> yeah. because what I wanted, what would be useful to do is because you've made the point. There are, you know, Bitcoin is global money. That means anyone can use it. People from any geography, uh, gender, age, um, political background, whatever beliefs are going to come and use this thing. But it it is useful to then consider what are the th what are our what are our red lines and where 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 can we argue and blur the lines? Where, where are we where are we not going to argue? Mm. I guess my personal ones would be the right to run your own node, uh, the right to run a coin join, uh, the, the right to own your private keys. Yeah, the sort of uh, a hard negative toward anything that tries to restrict self custody. So the right to the right to self custody, the right to run a coin join, the right to run your own node, the right to mine. Um, anything that kind of infringes on those would be the. I think would be obvious inclusions. It'd be um, an interesting debate to get those out to see what, like, what are the hard red lines people have because other people have other red lines. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be interesting. I to mean, see. other people would say, you know, I won't accept any policy proposal unless it eliminates all taxes on Bitcoin. Like, is that a red line? Are you saying I'm not going to sit down at the table uh, unless you know Bitcoin isn't taxed? Like, that is a red line for some. It's, it's not for me. Yes, yeah, of, of course, it's a red line for some people. But I think the most obviously sort of intuitive, reasonable, defensible red lines would be making sure that nothing is infringing on people's ability to run a node, own their private keys and self-custody, uh, to run a coin join and to mine. Like, I think if you can do those four things, like, we'll be, we'll be fine. Like, there might be shitty laws and we can fight those, but nothing will be in any way kind of existential to... American Bitcoin users. Um, those four things are like, that's the all hands moment when something like that, when, when something is proposed that that's like that, that sort of tries to interfere with one of those fundamental rights. Uh, yeah, that, that's a huge problem. Well, I think this is why it's really useful. There is like a, a new wave of Bitcoiners and you know, starting their first tour of duty uh, who've come in and, and having a different point of view or a different understanding of uh, uh or different opinions on how the world works, how they think it should work. Um, I think uh, people who've come in from the Bitcoin Policy Institute that you work with, I think they're doing a lot of interesting things. I think a lot of new interesting people have come into Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, yeah. I, I've, I'm finding people just by random articles and following them on. I found most of the BPI crowd on on like Twitter. Right, man. Like, I mean, when I like Troy Cross was, you know, had like a couple hundred followers and was just like tweeting these threads, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, we threw some gasoline on him. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have any gasoline, but I, yeah, I mean, but you do, Matthew, like all, all those people, mostly I, I found just kind of on Twitter, and then that's why I wanted to to make BPI. Like, ultimately, it was just I'm interested in this stuff, and 
it felt to me like very reasonable that in the first kind of 10 years or so of Bitcoin, that the policy and political conversations are very wonky, right? There, who's going to regulate this? What is crypto policy itself going to look like? Those are not the, I'm not a lawyer. Those are not the questions that interest me. Uh, The questions that interest me are, okay, we're, we're in this new epoch of Bitcoin where the question is less, well, I don't want to say less, but has evolved into including not just sort of regulatory and policy debates, uh, but debates about the policy implications of Bitcoin. How will this affect our every other thing in American life? How will Bitcoin affect energy markets and energy independence? How, how will Bitcoin affect uh, CBDC proposals? How will it affect U.S. national security? How will it affect authoritarianism abroad? Like these sort of one step removed policy conversations. What are the social implications of this technology? I saw for a while that, you know, outside of kind of the Twitter verse and like independent people sort of just blogging and writing uh, that, and I guess the Nakamoto Institute would be kind of the only example of people that were doing this really early and really fucking uh, and, well. And really well, yeah. Uh, there wasn't really much, especially that had a particular audience in mind that wanted to talk to other policy wonks, that wanted to talk to journalists and uh, staffers and people in DC. So that's like the main reason I made BPI because I just wanted to there was this content that I wanted to consume and there was this thought that I wanted to engage with people on and it didn't have like a supernatural home. So I just kind of made my own think tank and made the type of content and research that I wanted to see. Um, well, what, what's been interesting with this is if you, you can actually go back on the history of Bitcoin and look at the kind of the journey has been gone, in, gone on in kind of phases. So the early years was really just the the nerds and the cypherpunks and the geeks getting together and just like figuring out how this thing works. Like, how do we break it? Um, How do we get more people using it? How do we maximize decentralization? But you go to the Bitcoin talk uh, forums, they're just fascinating conversations about just getting this thing to work, getting some people to use it. You're just trying to break it. Um, And then it feels like we went through the next phase was like really kind of like the fork wars was really testing, you know, Bitcoin as a form of money and could, could people create a, a better form by forking off, which all of them failed and Bitcoin survived that. We're kind of beyond that now. If someone tried to fork Bitcoin, it'd be fucking ridiculous. Yeah. No one would take it seriously. And so we've gone beyond that. Like, But there's not, still so much left to like uncover. Oh, but there's like a, there's still people who've got to figure stuff like that. Yes. Still got to protect it. Still got to grow it. But, but there, there are some pretty robust ways now for up, um, up, upgrading Bitcoin. You know, that was tested recently with Bit 119, didn't get some right. social consensus. Taproot did get social. So a lot of that stuff is kind of figured out and, and, and the right people are working on that. But now we're in the, you know, Bitcoin is a thing within the world now. It is, yes. it is, it is a financial asset. It's something that politicians talk about. And I don't think I don't think the people, it's, it's okay that new people come in to figure that stuff out who are better equipped or get better skill sets to do that. And I think that'll be tricky for some people to handle. There's going to some, be some people who either want to cross the divide and be involved in that and don't have the skill set. Some will. There'll be some people coming in who do have that skill set who wouldn't have been particularly useful during the fork wars or during the very early days. And that's okay that we bring in these waves of new experts or opinions or people who can drive this forward. Yeah. And, you know, I am. The nice thing about uh, being a just a think tank is that you know we're just kind of thinking, <laughs> right, right? In a tank, so, in a tank. Yeah, we get up, we get Troy and everyone, and just like huddle in a tank and just yeah, think. No, but but yeah, I mean the the, the nice thing is that um, unlike I don't want to name them, but unlike p- 
previous attempts at similar things, no one is under the impression that we are representatives of Bitcoin. No one is under the impression that we speak for Bitcoin or for some loosely constructed group of people. We are literally just an independent nonprofit that's interested in the future of money. Could, could you argue you speak for the users of Bitcoin? No. No, absolutely not. Not now. Not but no. I would argue that letter you and Gladstein did speaks for the users of Bitcoin. Well, you know, yeah, sure. But that, uh, sort of get your order of operations flipped, right? People may agree with our content yeah. and say, this resonates with me and represents my views. If that's the case, then yes, sure. It's speaking for anyone for whom that's true. What it's not doing is saying, we represent the 40 million people that use Bitcoin or we represent the 200 million people across. We don't represent anybody except the people that are on our website. Um, but yeah, I think people have had a good reaction to the stuff that we've put out. I think largely, especially in the Bitcoin community, people have liked it. People have also disagreed, which is yeah. awesome. Like that's the whole well, point. Like what, we want, you know, uh, I want there to be a better medium than Twitter for having these nuanced debates and conversations about Bitcoin. You can uh, do it on a podcast. You can do it on a podcast. You can do it on a Zoom call. You can do it emailing with someone. Where, where, what are the main pillars of objection to the work you guys have been doing? Um, you know, uh, there's just, there's been several, but I guess the main ones are like, uh, you know, yeah. Are you trying to speak for Bitcoin? Uh, don't buy a lot of it's not necessarily that negative, more just like you're wasting your time. Like the government's already made up their mind. They want to ban Bitcoin. So why are you doing any of this? Um, which is fundamentally untrue. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's all just like noise. I, I like the good criticism that I have received. Uh, there's been some good criticism. Uh, like Has there been anything that's like sh from that criticism, you shifted your approach or shifted your thinking? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, when we put our first letter on energy out uh, a couple months ago, Gigi got in touch and was just like, hey, like, you know, was sort of stern, but was just like, Hey, like, I think there are some things I would change about your language here. I would do this. Uh, and the main thing was kind of something that we have grown into, which is like really making as a sort of first priority centering the social value of proof of work, uh, first. Um, so yeah, there was some like comments from Gigi about like how we were talking about proof of work. And th I thought that was really helpful. And that was a great example of criticism. That's like, I have a direct and actionable thing that I think that you should change rather than you're a spook or you're whatever. Like I, that stuff I just kind of like filter out. Cause I mean, yeah, we don't really have any sort of uh, grand ambition other than to like research Bitcoin and figure stuff out and inform people uh, in particular, the government uh, that, that, that Bitcoin is a potent force for social good in the same way that the, the internet was and that to properly bring with us the rights and liberties that we've enjoyed since the inception of this country into the digital age, we have to recognize that there is value in sort of market-based alternatives uh, and, and that open monetary networks bring risks like anything, but also bring unimaginable opportunity for spreading democracy, for ensuring civil liberties and rights uh, and for connecting more people to the global economy. Uh, and that all of those things, if, if sort of done well um, if, from the United States' perspective, can be quite beneficial. And so it really just means creating an environment where in the sort of free market of differing regulations in countries, people working on Bitcoin choose to work here. Like 
That's what we need to do. We need to have a set, sort of a regulatory environment that can compete with other countries uh, and, and where a rational Bitcoiner who wants to start a business, you know, chooses to work here and not just kind of begrudgingly like accepts it or, or pulls like an SBF and just like moves to the Bahamas, which say what you will about FTX or, or, or Sam uh, is a great example, I think, uh, of sort of the point that I'm making, that if you're not thoughtful about crafting an environment that is good for innovation, uh, that is good for entrepreneurship, that is good for hosting the people that are working at the cutting edge of technology, they, those people will happily go somewhere else. And all we will do is sort of just box ourselves out of something that we could have, like the internet, benefited immensely from. That's a great place to finish. That's a wonderful ending, David. Uh, I love you, man. I think you did amazing stuff. I think you've been a great addition to uh, what's going on in Bitcoin. Um, you are always welcome to come on the show. Thank uh, you. I really appreciate what you've done. What you did with Gladstein this week was incredible. Keep doing good stuff with the BPI. Stay in touch, man. Keep crushing. Tell people where to go and find out more information. Yeah, go to uh, btcpolicy.org. Uh, just finished our new website, so you can kind of... The first one was shit. Um, it was kind of just like a couple hours in web flow. So yeah. David hasn't slept for four days. Uh, it's kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Listen, take care. Love you, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep crushing. See you soon. Thanks, Peter. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing to do is head over to What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. 